Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello folks, I'm Scott Postman, I'm joined by Joffrey Swate, and we are your hosts today, and we are diving into Chapter 4 of Hicks, Norms, and Nobility. We're going to talk about the ideal, the ideal type. The ideal, the tyranny of the ideal image. So yeah, this is interesting choice of words, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that. There are definitely some word usages that uh, will be uh, profitably discomforting. Well, we want to start this episode with a wonderful poem from Auden, and uh, Joffrey's going to read it for us, so maybe give us the title and the poem itself. So it's called The Shield of Achilles. She looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble well-governed cities and ships upon untamed seas, but there on the shining metal his hands had put instead an artificial wilderness and a sky like lead. A plain without a feature, bare and brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighborhood, nothing to eat and nowhere to sit down, yet congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line, without expression, waiting for a sign. Out of the air a voice without a face, proved by statistics that some cause was just, in tones as dry and level as the place. No one was cheered and nothing was discussed. Column by column in a cloud of dust they marched away, enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. She looked over his shoulder for ritual pieties, white flower-garlanded heifers, libation and sacrifice. But there on the shining metal where the altar should have been, she saw by his flickering forge light quite another scene. Barbed wire enclosed an arbitrary spot where board officials lounged, one cracked a joke, and sentries sweated for the day was hot. A crowd of ordinary decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three pale figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. The mass and majesty of this world, all that carries weight and always weighs the same, lay in the hands of others. They were small and could not hope for help, and no help came. What their foes liked to do was done. Their shame was all the worst could wish. They lost their pride and died as men before their bodies died. She looked over his shoulder for athletes at their games, men and women in a dance, moving their sweet limbs, quick, quick to music. But there on the shining shield, his hands had set no dancing floor, but a weed-choked field. A ragged urchin, aimless and alone, loitered about that vacancy. A bird flew up to safety from his well-aimed stone. That girls are raped, that two boys knife a third, were axioms to him who'd never heard of any world where promises were kept, or one could weep because another wept. The thin-lipped armor, Hephaestus, hobbled away. Thetis of the shining breasts cried out in dismay at what the god had wrought to please her son, the strong, iron-hearted, man-slaying Achilles, who would not live long. Wow. Now, before we comment on that, I don't know if I like the poem better or your soothing radio voice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully it didn't over-soothe. No, no, no. It was great. Well, that that is, you know, uh, representative of of two very distinctly different worlds, right? You yes. know, that, that Homeric world of violence and uh, distrust and unsettled chaos. And then we have this other world that seems to have some cosmos to it, right? Right. You know, and, and you know, the poem, it kind of suggests that one leads to the other, right? Yeah. So Hephaestus makes this shield and this, the shield is this terrible, dry 1984 gray world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
I, th- I think behind that is I I honestly think that that Auden was saying you know the gospel is the answer to this yeah uh, although I'm sure we could write many books to argue just that point but um, certainly if those are the only two options before me I'm going to choose to live in the first world yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't want to live in that 1984 world what a yeah what a sad representation well I, and I think this is one of the areas that you know, learning the classics and, and reading classic um, literature really opens our eyes to how good the gospel, how good of news the gospel really yes. is, right? And I think in a modern democratic world where everyone has their, quote, freedom and there isn't any kind of judgment yet, it's a delayed judgment and instant gratification, it's difficult sometimes to look back at the gospel and see that that's really good news because we think this is even better news. We just haven't seen the end of sin yet. Right. Right. You know, but when you look at it from that angle and you see that world and then contrasted with the gospel world, uh, there's a much better world. And, you know, we're, we're talking about, about education. We're talking about classical Christian education. We're talking about the books, the book norms and nobility. And in this chapter, uh, there's going to be a contrast. You know, when we look at the poem, um, you know, there's there, there there's this inexorable logic, mm-hmm. you know, the statistics that drive people to grief and to death, right? That is the, the state's education system, right? Yes, right? The way we think of education is machine-like, right? And 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 this chapter is about breaking that. It's about making it ideal. It's about making it personal. And Christians should want to embrace that because we do have a personal ideal. And we know that when we educate, we need to be looking to the transcendent. That, yeah, that is, that is the image that, that we look to where the state is, as you mentioned, is really interested in the student's efficient existence, right? right? That, that machine-like existence. And, 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 and um, if I may interject, yeah. um, not just interested in, 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 in the student performing in that world, the existence of the human being is, is justified yes. by mathematical points. By, by their contribution to this, <laughs> this big, you know, right. being a cog in that wheel. Well, what Hicks opens with is this line, this is an ideal image tyrannized classical education. And when we think of classical education, one of the things that first comes to mind is the idea of the liberal arts, right? Mm -hmm. And so what he's going to contrast in this, just like this poem contrasted, he's going to contrast the difference between the, what he calls a real education. And, you know, it's, it's great because this is the way people often think, you know, is you're not getting a real education when you're studying the liberal (laughs) arts and and you could answer and say, no, I'm not getting a real education. Um, So the real versus the classical education and for the, for the classical education, it is geared toward a particular goal, and that is this ideal image, this tyrannizing image that he talks about. And then the real is toward this efficient, you know, human being who's going to live and work and, and you know, manifest this 1984 kind of world, right? right. So this is what he's unpacking. This is, this is what um, this whole chapter is, is all about, if we were to sum it up this way. So what is the ideal image? And, and throughout, what one of the things that Hicks is going to hint at over and over is that the ideal image isn't a very easily defined image. Right. Um, matter of fact, he calls it a priori in, in the sense that it's before we reason out, it's that which we sort of intuit that 
is noble, that which is good. And one way we could look at it is the seven, you know, uh, the four cardinal and, and three Christian virtues that bring up the, you know, the seven classical Christian virtues. And then we can also see that this is, from a Christian standpoint, this is exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ, the right. God-man, right? Yeah, and, you know, it, it's, even when we say that it's exemplified in Jesus Christ, you know, we don't want to be reducing it to a, a monad, right? Right. And, and what I mean by that is it can be tempting to uh, to create in our own minds exactly what Jesus was, yeah. right? And we all need to be exactly like that. And um, I can assure you, that um, you you do not need to become a skilled carpenter in order to be in paradise, right? right? Or whatever, you know, uh, Uh, obviously we need to imitate Christ and we want to imitate Paul who was imitating Christ. Um, But then, you know, we, we, when we look at the ideal type, part of what's being, 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 being said with that idea is that um, we look to masters. That's right. We look to great men. Um, and so, you know, we can even look to, uh, uh, say, a controversial figure like Thomas Jefferson, and, you know, he brings Jefferson up in, in this chapter. And, you know, we can ask, well, what would Jefferson have done? What would Jefferson have said? What did Jefferson think about this and that? Um, you know, how did Jefferson live? Yep. Right? And and so what that does, is it actually introduces a lot of freedom because, you know, we as Christians, and even, you know, non-Christians who are educated in this way, it actually creates um the possibility for divergence, yes. right? Because you're imitating, but then you're also sort of creating your own and imitating multiple sources, multiple ideal men. And that's not to say that there's, you know, okay, well, the ideal type, it, it doesn't mean just pick whatever. Um, there's unity to it. But what there isn't is a monad, right? The modern way of teaching says this is exactly what is best, and there is no veering from that. See yeah. how close you can get. Yeah. <laughs> well, and th- and that's why I think he hints at this more universal idea throughout. And it's very uh, Aristotelian in that he points to this um, this abstracted ideal image, right? Mm-hmm. That you said there's Jefferson. We can see it in the person of Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians four that we are to you know that's the, we strive to be you know to the measure of the fullness of of Christ. And, and so there's a striving there. He talks about the golden mean. We'll, we'll get to that in a, in a few moments. And, and he really lifts up this, this idea that in any particular time period, we can look and see a character who, like you mentioned, Jefferson, exemplifies this. But the one that he really focuses on for the classical education is teacher, right? That the teacher exemplifies not only the things, you know, they're not only just teaching, but they're exemplifying this ideal image. And that's going to look different in, for different, you know, students in different time periods in, in, in different contexts. And that may sound daunting to any teacher who is listening, uh, but uh, to, the, to those teachers, I would say, hey, it's it's too late. Uh, you, <laughs> I mean, first of all, you're already a Christian and you assumed some authority. So you're already saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yeah. You already <laughs> took that big responsibility. <laughs> so to, you know, I mean, so, so this is, this is a piece, this, this is nothing. This, this is, <laughs> this is just lived out in education, right? Right. right. <laughs> Well, here's a couple of things that, that we can kind of unpack. One of the things that um, that Hicks is going to draw our attention to is in history, there has been this sort of wrestling match um, for authority, right? right? So so not only do we, as, as classical educators, look and say, okay, we want to focus on the ought rather than the is, right? This is uh, this, this image that we know. And 
Well, and let me pause here before I get to the other thing I was going to say. He he mentions this idea that when we have this exemplif this this image that's exemplified this way, we recognize that we fall short of that. And part of our education is looking at the gap, the gap between what is, uh, you know, where we are right now and where we ought to be. And, and so this is part of the education in a very similar sense to the way when Socrates, through his Socratic dialogue, would unpack everything that is not the answer, right? So we may not have, and that's part of the education. And part of the education is recognizing, man, I'm falling short. And, and he had talked about this a little bit and led up to it in the previous chapter that the teacher, the educator, while exemplifying this and mastering whatever subject or these things we're talking about, the student in some ways is going to stand in awe and they are going to try to emulate and, yes. you know, and see the model in their teacher both lived out and taught. And, you know, and that connects to the doctrine of, of, of revelation, uh, we, you know, which ultimately just comes down to you know h- how we how we see the world. So this is very fundamental. But with the ideal type, what you're doing is you are accepting that there are some things that are transcendent. Yes, right. And there are right. some things that come to you as they are. In a sense, some things are already complete as you begin to learn. And uh, and you know, Hicks uh, contrasts that to a Descartian model where everything <laughs> is untrusted must be broken down to the very nuts and bolts and then from there it must be built on science right, <laughs> right. and then he says you know, it's very natural that science would be the, the 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 thing to assume this mantle uh but what the problem with that though is that it's not transcendent mm-hmm. it's internal and and this is actually you know what i what i meant by by my comment earlier that the modern way of of educating forces you to be very particular, a very specific thing on a, on a track and how yes. far can you get along uh, with that track? Because if things are transcendent, then of course all things come from God, yeah. but, but there, you know, there are many things coming to us transcendentally, uh, that many things that are revealed to us and many things that we can imitate. But um, in the Descartian way of doing things, it's the the instinct of humans, and in, in this is built up momentum. This is why there's all this rhetoric about diversity, but everything is is, is singular. Yeah. You know, there's no actual diversity. Uh, you've been given a few pieces, and the expectation is that it be assembled in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Right. And then as you and then and then you 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 develop that, and you but you assemble it a certain way. And so you know, we all we all got the same ingredients. Right. And, and, and those ingredients need to lead to this thought and then that thought. And so it create it, it funnels everything into a narrowness. Yes. And, and, and everyone is diversely the exact same. Right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> Which is, you know, so there can be no tolerance yeah. for, for difference where we, you know, as Christians, you know, we might say, I'm going to be uh, more like so-and-so than so-and-so as I pursue being like Christ, yeah. right? But I'm going to take this and I'm going to take that. You know, that, that all remains possible. It remains open. And that's a wonderful thing about classical education that that, that recognizes that transcendent uh, aspect of it. Well, and as a matter of fact, he, he mentions one of the famous um, ideas, uh, one of the famous Greek ideas of the ideal type, um, the uh, the Kelo, uh, ke- uh, Kagatha, um, this idea of the man who's both beautiful and good. Mm-hmm. So part of the music and, and gymnasium of the, of the early education was that, you know, physical strength, um, and, and 
beauty in, in terms of the body reaching its full potential, just like the mind reaching its full potential. And he says this, um, he didn't so much seek his answer in poetry and philosophy as he sought illustration and confirmation of his answer there. The answer, as it were, preceded the question and the questioner, but both were needed to elicit it. Each new generation of students begins at the beginning with Homer and Hesiod, refining, perhaps reinterpreting the primal stamp but never presuming to set up a rival ideal and never daring to give an entire uh, to give in entirely to pragmatic doubts. Any rival ideal would have been met with sheer incomprehension as St. Paul discovered in uh, Mars Hill and worse fate awaited the doubter as the Athenians learned when the Syracuse Syracusian debacle uh, followed hard on their ruthless real politic at Milos because it was rooted in the dogma of a prescriptive view of man. That was a long way to get to that, but the ideal withstood the ravages of time and change, and like the life of virtue at its heart, it remained immediately recognizable in all ages to all men, whether it wore the mail of armor of a Christian Richard or the flowing, uh, flowing robes, robes of a Muslim Saladin. And we talked a little bit about that uh, even just pre-show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where an image comparing that, you know, might be a little bit confusing to someone who doesn't understand, you know, how could you compare, you know, Richard with, with Saladin and, and see something noble in both. Um, but certainly there was something noble within certain contexts, yes. right, um, of, of each of those that we draw from. And as Christians, we can filter that through our image of Christ rather than making that monad you talked about. Right. And, you know, yeah, and it may seem seem restrictive, uh, but, you know, the reminder here is that what it is is human. Yes, right? human. Um, and, and so, so it's, it's, it's not actually restrictive to say, um, to say that there's, there's this ideal Right. Because, you know, the fundamental question that is asked in this in this section of uh, of, of of this chapter is what is excellence in man? Yes. So you're, you're actually already starting way above where Descartes is able to. Right. right? Like your, your, your most fundamental question assumes so much it assumes there is such a thing as excellence. Yeah. It assumes that man is real, that that you and I may have things in common and yes. that, right. And that you and I could have an idea of, of, of progress, of excellence, of growth. Yep. Right. Um, and, and, and none of that can be assumed in a Descartian modernist. No, worldview. not, not at all. Be, be, because of the way it's particularized. Well, and, and I think what, one of the things that you raise here with this transcendent is, is maybe for our audience to think about for a moment, I mentioned earlier that it was Aristotelian in some senses. Um, and I, I failed to mention the, the philosophical where, you know, historical becomes very particular, you know, if we're, we're focusing on one historical character, whereas the poetry, um, or the philosophical, um, and, and or I'm sorry, the poetry is more philosophical because it looks at a universal. And I, I, I'd raise that up because when Plato and Aristotle were discussing this idea of the ideal, right? So Plato sees it coming from a transcendent place somewhere in the realm of the forms out in outer space, <laughs> whatever yeah. Plato, but there's this humanness, you know, whatever right. that is, the ideal humanness that we are all copies of. But Aristotle says, well, actually, it's in the thing itself, and we abstract it. When I look at this man and that man and this man over here, I see something ideal in, in each of them, 
that something they, both beautiful and good. Yes, <laughs> and they and they you know abstract from them those different particulars one uh, ideal image, and I think this is where Hicks is getting to that transcendent you know yeah. sort of view. Well, yeah. Let me, let me read a, a couple of, of things from the from the end of the chapter. Um, at the beginning, beginning of section four, he says, the education of the real prepares a student for an efficient existence. And he's been you know, speaking disparagingly of the education of the real. That to him is the Descartian uh, thing. It supplies him with a knowledge of precise and certain ideas, i.e. facts, and presents him with whatever repetitive and highly functional technique i.e. skills, will assure his success. Success in the realm of the real tends to be measured against selfish and tangible standards, money, power, and pleasure. No longer does education thwart man's lowest desires. And then he talks about the ideal. The distinction between the education of the ideal and the education of the real is achieved by comparing the ancient and modern means or norms. The Greek doctrine of the golden mean prescribed man as he ought to be, physically poised, mentally balanced and rounded off, thoughtful in action and active in thought, the living embodiment of the ideal type. The modern mean, on the other hand, the modern mean, on the other hand, defines the individual as he is in relation to a statistical point. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> this is how everyone has done it in this demographic for this period of time, and this is what the, this is the new standard, right? right. And so, yeah. when 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 we or Pink Floyd rail against being turns and in, <laughs> turned into cogs, it's it's real. It yeah. really is what uh, how people think of other people. Everyone is just a cog. We won't use the word. But, you know. but that but that is ideally what it is. So this is probably, um, and, and I want to actually, I want to connect this back to something, um, you know, earlier where, uh, where he talks about Thomas More and, and this, where this fundamental yes. shift happened. But this is probably one of my favorite sections of the chapter because he brings out something so important. Um, and we, we've talked often about splintered light, right? Um, mm -hmm. So the pagans had splintered light, and uh, that's a, a phrase from Tolkien. And the idea of a Christian is we get to look through the gospel lens at the splintered light. But by looking at the splintered light, you know, we, we have the whole in the collective whole of truth in scripture. But when we look at these individual splinters, we get a new perspective on that. Okay. And, and so when we read a verse like first John two fifteen, where mm. he says, love, not the world, the things of the world, it's the love of the, uh, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Right. Um, and, and so in these, we, we, we sort of look at that verse and, and, you know, let's not be, we're in the world, but not of the world. But what he really raises here is when you have this kind of statist education, this real education, it primes the the student to be the very thing that John warns us not to be, right? Right. So you want to be successful in this world. What does it look like to be successful? To get the next promotion, to have the big house, to have the money, to you know, to have the trophy husband or wife, whatever yes. it is. So these are the the ideal standards that the real education yeah. seeks to give. And all of them, while making them not human, dehumanizing them, they're empowering them, you know, to become right. You know, I think un you know, there's an irony here that you're 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 talking about, but not saying explicitly. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just put it out there explicitly. Uh, so, so many Christians have this this instinct. Okay, so we're we're not, we're not to be of the world. We're in the world, uh, but not of the world. And so what they do is they they abstract themselves they pull themselves out from um 
constructing from building anything because, yep. you know, it's all going to burn. And so the, the irony of that, though, is that they end up participating in the anti-Christian life. That's right. right. Because they're just trying to get through. Yes. Right. They're keeping their heads down until they get to heaven. Yep. So they become part of these dehumanizing systems. Right. Just, you know, just try to be comfortable. You know, take care of your kids. See if you can buy a house. Right. And so and the best way to do that is to is to participate in all of this. Go get educated by the state. It doesn't really matter. Yep. Just follow Jesus. Right. Uh, go get this dehumanizing job. It doesn't really matter. Just follow Jesus. And but the fact is, it does matter and it will pull you away from Christ. It does. Every single, I mean, almost every single time we see students going off and, and, you know, that's a whole nother topic, but it dehumanizes while it empowers it, it dehumanizes and then gives the leverage. And I think Lewis called that the more clever devil, right? You educate yes. somebody without character. So this transition to a real education where this became the dominant way of thinking, um, we often look at that as happening in, you know, late, 18, what, 1890 to 1920. Yeah. But as we were reading through this and talking about it, um, you know, you suggested that really this whole shift took place, you know, all the way back in the 1700s. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in, in the chapter, uh, Hicks uh, mentions uh, Thomas More. And for that episode, by the way, I highly recommend if you've never read uh, T.S. Eliot's play Murder in the Cathedral, oh, yeah. do. It's great. <laughs> um, you know, but then we're talking about, you know, high medieval into, you know, and then we, we end up in the Renaissance and all this conflict basically between the church um, and when I say the church, I mean all the Christian church, so the Roman Catholics, uh, you know, the, the, the Reformed churches, um, and the state. Uh, in 1750, I think you know, there was a climactic conflict, mm -hmm. which the state won, and, and all other Western history after that is just the state mopping up, yeah. right? And so, you know, particularly as Americans, uh, we tend to date a lot of those things later. But, you know, in, in, in my view, uh, most of what we feel was fighting is actually just refugees streaming <laughs> out from, the, from, uh, from lost cities. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in, 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 you know, in the 1750s, uh, the, the Jesuits in particular um, lost their control of the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the state targeted them and targeted the Pope, the Portuguese and Spanish courts uh, targeted, targeted them so that they could increase their profits and yep. do what the state does in the Americas. And it's actually remarkable if you, if you study, you know, it, it, you can actually see some of this in the movie, the mission. I was just going to mention, as yeah. you're saying that, I thought we should. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course it wasn't just the Jesuits fighting, but you know, the Roman Catholic yep. church was highly organized and, um, they were able to, to, to put up great resistance to what were the most powerful states of the time. Right. So England was on the ascendancy. But and, you know, once the once the Jesuits were removed, were no longer able to do what they wanted to do is and a lot of it had to do with education. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that, you know, the state got to define what reality was and they no longer had to consider the church as a rival. Right. That that episode where the, the Jesuits started to keep control of the Americas and, event, and and lost it was the last time any Western government had to be afraid of the church. Yeah. And, you know, there, it's, it's not like, you know, so we as Protestants, you know, don't don't necessarily see the way the Roman church behaved previous to that as 
as healthy. <laughs> right. We, <laughs> right. Definitely uh, a few, but, but a few it is problems. Historically there. <laughs> significant that um, that it was a church, yeah. and that and that you know after that it became uh, a puppet of yeah. of governments. Well, and I think that you know that cultural shift really puts the church in in terms of its influence on culture through education and you know in 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 church planting and all the things that, that churches do. The it, it put them sort of in an exile uh, sort yes. of frame of of reference, right? And and so this. Well, I wish it had put us into an exile frame of reference. Honestly, I mean, we can still see the the legacy of the of the Jesuits and you know Boston College or mm-hmm. you know Jesuit schools all over, right? But you know, Christians, Protestants, and Catholics uh, did not go into exile mode like mm-hmm. the Jews of yore, ah. for example, right? Instead, they became powerless participants. Right? So they became complicit. I sort of wish, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, and maybe this is going off on too much of a tangent and will create too much controversy. But you know, I I think that Christian society, if you'll allow that, could benefit from a bit of ghettoization. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I wouldn't even bring it up. And, <laughs> but I mean, they, yeah. what I mean by that is that you know, I mean. There is a reason um, that uh, you know so many Jews are great violin players, sure, um, and great scholars, yeah. right? Because in these, because they could not participate and would not participate in the broader society, they were able to excel in the things that they wanted to excel in, and and Christians have over have overall because there are so many of us, we have we have failed to um, to consolidate, strengthen ourselves, and from there go out, right? So instead what we are are just a bunch of cutoff units fighting alone. Mm -hmm. Well, I I tend to think, um, and and maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I tend to think that part of this classical Christian renewal is really going to be, in a sense, a philosophical ghetto, you know, where where there's a lot more cooperation between the different traditions in in light of this, um, with the central focus being Christ and the ability to influence another, you know, the next generation with this ideal, you know, humanness versus the status cog kind of real education, right? The efficient man. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I I, I actually, and enough, you know, enough of history has flowed um, that at this point, you know, we've all been taking steps backwards and now we find ourselves back to back. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we may actually be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, here we are. Um, well, this has been a good episode, and I hope that this has given you, uh, our listeners, just a, a taste of uh, Worms of Nobility and some of the great themes that Hicks draws from. And uh, our uh, conversation about it hopefully will stir you to take a look at it and think more about classical education. This has been fun. Thanks, everybody. So long. God bless.